Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I promise we're not doing a Christmas repeat. <laughs> Last week, uh, it's kind of surprised everybody, maybe, uh, by wearing a Christmas sweater and preaching on the Advent. The reason I did that is because I want us to walk through the life of Jesus. You know, we started this series some weeks ago, I Know Nothing. And it's a play on words with Paul's letter to the Corinthians. You guys remember how we started this? Paul's re- letter to the Corinthians. And I told you guys, whenever I feel like I've got problems or I feel like the church has problems, if you guys ever give me all kinds of complications and all kinds of issues, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to go to the first letter of Paul's or the first letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And I'm going to read it and I'm going to remind myself that you guys aren't that bad. <laughs> I'm just playing. But seriously, whenever I feel down on myself, that's what I do. I read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and I remind myself that Paul didn't give up on them, and they had a lot of problems, and Paul won't give up on me. Jesus didn't give up on them. Jesus won't give up on me. There's still hope. But the thing that I found fascinating, and this is what I shared with you, is the way that Paul goes about it. He doesn't say you need a psychiatrist, you need a nutritionist, you need a marriage counselor, you need, you need a straitjacket. He doesn't do that. He just says, when I was among you, I resolved to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Not I don't know anything, not I can't know anything, not I've never read or been educated. You know, I told you guys, not, it's none of that. It's I made a decision, I covenanted with myself and with God that I was going to know one thing among you, and that was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is, I'm going to know the person and work of Jesus, and that is going to be the platform and the foundation to deal with all the issues that we face. And the problem is, is we try to do ministry outside of Jesus. And we try to do Jesus as like the add-on. You know, like, hey, we're going to hashtag Jesus' name on everything that we do, but we're going to use natural means and metrics and plans and strategies and formulas to try to conduct ministry the way we want, and then we're just going to put Jesus' name on it. We kind of do that whole Colossians, you know, do all that you do to the glory of God. We kind of use that as like an afterthought or a hashtag or a postscript on our life saying, oh, we did it to the glory of God. No, you didn't. You did it to the glory of yourself, and then you tried to give it back to God. I told you guys I believe that that should be the litmus test or the filter through which we do everything. Is is this to the glory of God? And then, of course, we made the decision we were going to walk through. What is the person and work of Jesus Christ? And we didn't start with his birth. We started in eternity past with the covenant of redemption where God covenanted with himself before creation, before the foundation of the world. He covenanted with himself that he would provide salvation. Before man ever fell, before God ever said, let there be light, he had already said in eternity past, let there be salvation. The divine economy would be established. The Father ordains, the Son accomplishes, the Holy Spirit appropriates. That was all set before Adam was ever formed. 
And then we went to the creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. How Jesus wasn't a created being. There's a lot of people out there that will teach what's called adoptionism, and they'll teach that Jesus Christ was an ordinary man, and that he grew up, and then around the age of 30, when he got baptized, God decided to make him the first born-again person and put his spirit within him. Jesus was just a man until God touched him. That's heresy. That's false. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. He is co-equal with the Father. And he is co-eternal with the Spirit and co-equal with the Spirit. He was there when God said, let there be light. Christ was there. And then we went through the prophets and how every word of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. 3.5 million characters in the Bible and every one of them testifies of Jesus Christ. Every jot, every tittle, behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Everything points back to Jesus. And then last week we had an early Christmas and celebrated the advent of Jesus Christ. And I didn't mention it last week, and it was a little bit of an oversight, but it was also because it would have been herky-jerky and wouldn't have fit into the message. But last week we began a certain section of Jesus' life and ministry. See, in theology, they divide the life of Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished into two sections. You have the humiliation of Christ, and you have the exaltation of Christ. And the humiliation is everything from the moment in time when he initiated the incarnation, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, everything from that moment up until he laid down in the tomb and descended into the uttermost parts of the earth, that is the humiliation of Christ from the incarnation to the tomb and everything in between. And then the exaltation of Christ is everything from the resurrection onward. That includes his appearing to the 500, that includes the 40 days, that includes the ascension, that includes the sprinkling the blood on the heavenly mercy seat, that includes his eternal session, that includes his second coming, that includes the institution of the new Jerusalem and him reigning eternally in glory. All of that is the exaltation of Christ. And so with the incarnation, we began to talk about the humiliation of Christ. And by humiliation, I don't mean being made fun of or being embarrassed. I mean a lowering. Now, as we talk about the humiliation, we need to get one heretical thought out of the way. And that is this. There are a lot of people that believe that Jesus set his divinity aside. That's not true. God cannot stop being God at any point in time. He set his glory aside. He set his reputation, his grandeur aside, but he never once stopped being God. If God could stop being God, then he wasn't really God in the first place. With that being said, we are going to continue now with this little section between his birth or his advent and his baptism, which would be the induction of his public ministry. And we don't know a lot about this period. We know about his circumcision We know about the 12-year-old appearance in the temple, and then it's pretty much null and void. There's a lot of speculation as to what went on, but I'm not here to speculate. I'm here to see what the Scripture says. Amen? All right, let's read. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in the King James Version. We're going to start off with Luke 2, 21, and we're going to read a little while down to the end of the chapter. You guys good? Let's go. Verse 21, and when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 
And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. Praise God for old men with the Holy Ghost. And it was revealed unto him, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which will, shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, praise God for old prophets and prophetesses, Come on, ladies. The men said amen. Where's the ladies saying amen? Hallelujah. The daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, she was of great age. It doesn't say she was old. You don't tell ladies you're old. She's, she's well advanced in years or she's a great age. That's what you say. Hallelujah. And he lived, had lived with a husband for seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instance gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem. There's an intermission here from eight days to 12 years. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Verse 49, it says this, Jesus says unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wished ye not or did you not know that I must be about my father's business? That verse right there, you could really say that that's the entire climactic statement for the entire person and work of Jesus. For the entire life and ministry, that right there is it. Did you not know I must be about my father's business? So if it's that case for his entire ministry, then it's definitely that case for this passage. And I'm talking about the circumcision and the instance in when he was 12 in the temple. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? 
in the very first verse that we read, it says, when the days, eight days were accomplished for the circumcision, circumcision of the child. Did you know that this is the first time in Scripture Jesus sheds blood on this earth? That is circumcision. First time. And see, we don't talk about the blood like we used to. I didn't grow up in church. I was out of church for a long time. But when I became a Christian, I started listening to preaching. And to be honest... And this is a slight against preaching, but a lot of modern day preaching is pretty soft. It's like a cool TED talk at church, and it sucks. I'm just being honest. But I would go back and listen to some of the old preaching, some of the men that are long dead and gone. And when they talk about Jesus, and when they talk about the blood, you could just feel that they actually meant it, and they actually believed what they preach. I feel like a lot of time, unfortunately, we try to look at it and we try to get like, okay, what's practical, what's applicable? And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we should take applicable things from the text and apply it to our life and allow the Spirit to transform us and to lead us in good things. But we have gotten so focused on the imperatives of Scripture, like what to do, what not to do, how to behave, how not to behave, how to look, how to act, how to think, that we have forgotten about the indicatives of Scripture, which means what is true just because it is true. We think about what we should do for God that we forget about what God has already done for us. And so the blood, the reason that it's kind of gotten lost in the mix is because it sits in the indicative category and not in the imperative category. It's not something that we can do. It's something that has been done. It's already something that has been given. And so when we think about the circumcision, this may be the second time or the first time that Jesus shed blood on this earth, but it's the second time that he shed blood. It's the second time that he shed blood in the scriptures because the first time was an eternity past. We already talked about that. It was an eternity past when God said, let there be salvation, when God had you on his mind before he ever said, let there be light. You guys remember that whole message? Yeah, that right there was the first time Christ shed blood in the heart and the mind of God. That's why John the Revelator says, I saw a lamb having been slain from the foundation of the world. Because the lamb was already slain in the heart and the mind of God before the world was ever formed. He shed blood in the heart and mind of God to show that God loves you. He is for you. He's not reactive. He is proactive. He doesn't just wait for mankind to fall and then create a response to it. He had already planned for the fall long before we ever messed up. And I take so much comfort in that because if God gave me grace to deliver me from where I was at, he knew in that moment of extending me grace that I was going to fall flat on my face time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. And I could keep saying time and still wouldn't catch up to with how many times some of you have fallen. <laughs> Listen, I always say ex- experience is just a longer opportunity to make mistakes. And a lot of us, we've been saved for quite a while And we've had a lot of opportunity to make mistakes. We're well experienced in how to fall flat on our face. And any Christian that says that they're not is a bold-faced liar. (laughs) And John says it. He says, if any man says that he has not sinned, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even after that, grace comes into your heart and into your life and God changes you and transforms you and delivers you, you still fall flat on your face. And the grace of God was put there to be a provision for when you fell after you were saved. The blood doesn't leave the mercy seat just because you trip. Praise God for that. Let me say that again. The blood doesn't leave the mercy seat just because you fall. 
It's because you tripped. That blood is not moving anywhere. The first time Christ shed blood in eternity past to show that God is for you, that you are on his heart and on his mind. The second time that Christ shed blood is right here at the circumcision. And it's done in keeping with the law. The entire ministry of Christ Jesus is to fulfill the law. That's the reason that he came was because we couldn't fulfill the law. So he fulfilled the law. And in fulfilling the law, he doesn't do away with the law. He fulfills it. And then out of that fulfillment, he establishes a new covenant that we might walk into the fulfillment of the law. No longer being required to fulfill it, but being enabled to participate in his fulfillment of it. That's the point of progressive revelation. I hate it when people say we need to separate from the Old Testament or throw the Old Testament out. No, the Old Testament tells me what Jesus has done for me and how I am able to live in the covenant with God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the second reason that he sheds blood is at the circumcision. We don't get to see the third time until Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, Christ Jesus does what? He sweats great drops of blood. And this shows a couple things. Number one, it shows us that we are no longer living by the sweat of our brow as Adam did as a repercussion of the curse, but now we get to live by the sweat of his brow. So it's no longer by our works, but it's by his works. It's no longer by our merit, but it's by his merit. It's no longer by our struggles, but it's by his struggles. We don't eat our bread. We get to eat his bread, which is the bread of God, the bread of heaven. The second reason is that he, in that position of prayer, sanctified and put his blood on our prayers praise God that our prayers have been sanctified the fourth time that he sheds blood is at the judgment hall and I could separate and say Caiaphas house I could say Pilate's judgment hall I could say Herod's judgment hall but the truth is is all of them wrapped up together communicate one thing that Jesus bore our shame that he was mocked so that we could be celebrated. That he was forsaken so that we could be welcomed. That he was smitten and beaten and made fun of and blasphemed against so that our blasphemy, our times of failing, our times of mockery, our shame could all be wiped away and forgiven. Praise God for that. The next time that he shed blood was at the whipping post when they tied his hands around that post and they beat him with a cat of nine tails and tore chunks of flesh off his back. And y'all are Pentecostal, so I have no reason or no need to tell you why his back was beaten. He was beaten so that we might be healed. By his stripes we are healed, says Isaiah the prophet. So he shed blood in his body so that our body could be healed. Praise God for that. See, that's why we talk about the blood, because it still does things for us, not expects things from us, but does things for us. The next time that he shed blood was on the Via Della Rosa. That is the way of the blood. The way of the blood. And that is from the moment of his condemnation to the moment of his, the cross and his death. And what that shows is that every step you take from the moment that the decision has been made until the moment you leave this earth, every single step is covered in the blood of Jesus. From the moment that you say, I will take up my cross and follow you, Jesus, every step you take from then on out is covered and paved in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is good news. The next time he sheds blood is at Golgotha or Calvary itself when he sheds blood on that tree. And there's a lot of things going on here. A lot of things. He sheds blood from his head to show that your mind is now sanctified. He sheds blood from his hands to show your works are now sanctified. From his feet to show your walk is sanctified. From his back because you're healed, remember? And he sheds blood, water, and spirit from his side. And that is the birth of the church. And that shows that your witness is sanctified. 
And then you may be thinking, well, there's two more times he sheds blood in the grave. No, he takes his shed blood to the grave. Now we're moving from a shedding to a sprinkling. He sprinkles his blood in the grave to show that death, hell, and the grave no longer have hold on you. And then he takes it even further and he takes that blood and he sprinkles it on the heavenly mercy seat to show that your sin for all time is atoned for. And you now are justified in the sight of God. That's good news, church. That's the blood of Jesus. And we need to talk about that more often. Amen? Amen. When the eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, that's the shedding of his blood. The first time he does it on this earth, his name was called what? Jesus. Jesus. You know, I did that this morning, and I didn't plan on doing that. You know, I didn't know I was going to deal with an anxiety attack. I didn't know that I was going to have God walk me through saying the name of Jesus. And you may not have felt it. I don't know. You know, sometimes God's doing something, and half the people feel what's going on, and half the people don't. You know, it's kind of like God speaking from heaven. Some heard God. Some heard thunder. Some heard an angel. You know, you don't know who experiences what when God moves. But I'm going to tell you, when we were saying the name Jesus, I could feel the atmosphere changing. I could feel the air shifting. And it reminded me of a phone call Faith got this week. She's probably going to start blushing because she knows where I'm going with this. But she got a phone call from a friend of ours this week. And our friend told Faith, she said, you know, I was doing a Bible study. And and we were talking about the name of Jesus. And she said, I shared with them something and she's like I don't even know if I've ever told you this before she's like but I love it when you say the name Jesus because you say it with such conviction and with such reverence that when you say the name Jesus I feel the atmosphere change and she's like I had no way of explaining all the girls in the Bible study were looking at me like I was dumb like a deer in the headlights and she's like I had no way of explaining what was going on and she said but I've always prayed that God would do that for me. And she said in that moment when I said the name Jesus, I could feel the atmosphere in the room shift. And she's like, so then they got to understand and experience what it was I was talking about. And they began to have their eyes opened a little bit to the power of the name of Jesus. His name is powerful. Listen, I can't sing, but if I could, I'd bust out and I'd say, Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name master savior like a fragrance after the rain told you i can't sing man there's something about that name there's something about that name the name jesus i go through these seasons and i've went through them in my life but particularly one was extended right after i began ministry i was still young and trying to figure things out my theology was whack I'm just going to throw that out there. My theology was whack, but one thing I wasn't distorted on was the prominence that Jesus held in Christianity. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Christianity is Jesus Christ plus or minus nothing. It is just Jesus. We could, we'd do a whole lot better if we'd get out all, away from the particulars and the preferences and we'd just say Christianity is about Jesus. But there was a long period of time there when I first got into ministry where I couldn't hear the name Jesus without tears welling up in my eyes. And it doing something inside, it lighting a fire, turning. Just hearing the name Jesus did something to me physically. And sometimes it was downright inconvenient. You know, you'd be walking through Walmart and somebody would say his name in a derogatory manner and it'd still do something inside me. I just thought, this is the name that God has tethered to Yahweh. To the name that is above every name. And so many of us use it 
lackadaisically or haphazardly. You know, we'd be walking through the house and we stub our toe and we're like, Jesus, that ain't praise or worship. You're using his name as a byword. Because we think, and religion has taught us, that saying the name of Jesus haphazardly is less offensive than saying a cuss word. I'm not telling you to cuss. Don't misread this. But what I am saying is saying the name of Jesus haphazardly or lackadaisically or irreverently is a lot worse than saying a cuss word. We should say his name with respect and reverence because this is the name of God. This is the name of God. And in Jewish culture, they wouldn't even say Yahweh. I've told you guys this before. In prayer, they'd say Adonai, and in conversation, they'd say Hashem, the name. They wouldn't ever say the name Yahweh. And this doctrine or this tradition was so prominent that when they translated the Old Testament into Greek to the Septuagint, the reason they translated it the way they did and they translated Yahweh as Kurios, which is Greek for Lord, is because they didn't want somebody reading it and pronouncing Yahweh and saying it. And what's really cool about this is in a lot of your Bibles, New American Standard, English Standard, NIV, a lot of your Bibles, when you read the Old Testament, you'll see Lord written a bunch of different ways. You'll see it with a capital L and a lowercase O-R-D, or you'll see it with a capital L and a capital O and a capital R and a capital D. Well, when it's in all caps like that, it's because in that instance, it's actually substituting the place where God's proper name, Yahweh, is used. So if you see L-O-R-D in all caps, it's where God's name Yahweh is being used. And that tradition from the Septuagint is actually carried over into our modern translations. And you're probably asking, why are you bringing this up? Well, this past week, I noticed something cool when I was reading, something I've never noticed before. I'm reading out of the King James, and I don't, I'm not a King James only. I don't do that with translations. I love a lot. I've actually preached out of the New King James, the New American Standard, and the NIV, the English Standard, and the King James just in the less than a year that I've been here. I preached out of five different translations in less than a year. So I'm not a King James only kind of guy. It is my favorite translation because that's what I've got memorized and it's poetic and it's beautiful. And a lot of my heroes and the Puritans, they use this translation so I can kind of connect with them. But as I was reading the King James, I noticed something. Never paid attention to it before. But in Luke 2.21, will you guys throw up Luke 2.21, King James? In Luke 2.21, right here, they're all, this whole thing is capped, so that just completely ruins it. <laughs> in the King James translation, the name of Jesus is in all capital letters. In this verse, in all capital letters. It's not done that way in anywhere else in the King James. See, there you go. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. It's not done that way in any other translation. It's not done that way in the NASB. New, uh, I think some New King James would do it to carry over the tradition. The NIV, no, none of them. And I began to ask myself why. And I couldn't find the reason. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It was a translation preference that the original King James did, and it just carried on. 
And so then I began to ask and God, okay, what's, what's this mean? And I'm not saying this is the answer. I don't have any proof. But the thing that began to stir in my heart was what if the translators, when his name was called Jesus, wanted to connect the name of Jesus to the name of Yahweh? Because in the Old Testament, they capitalized, they put Lord in all caps when it's substituting the name Yahweh. And this is the only time in the New Testament where the name of Jesus is done that way. And I was wondering if maybe the King James translators were wanting to show a connection between the two. Even if they don't, the connection's still there because that's what Philippians 2 talks about. When it says that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess he is glory or he is Lord Kurios to the glory of God the Father. Kurios, the same word that is used in place of Yahweh throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Septuagint. Just a thought. I want you to notice a couple things here in this verse. The first thing is, Jesus' ministry is tied to the circumcision, the blood, shedding of blood, and the fulfillment of the law. The second thing is that his name was established, connected to the circumcision. The third thing is that the name of Jesus actually means God is salvation. So everything going on here in this verse is setting a prophetic precedence for the ministry of Jesus, and that is he came to be about his Father's business, to fulfill the law, to offer redemption, and to be our salvation. Because Jesus means God is salvation. It doesn't mean God provides salvation. God makes a way for salvation. God opens the door for salvation. God purchases salvation. It doesn't mean any of that. All that's included, but it actually means God is salvation. God is salvation. He isn't just saving us from something. He's saving us for something, namely for himself. It's good news, church. It's good news, church. All right. I want to keep going. We're talking about names. I want to talk about a few more. Are you good? Is everybody tracking with me? All right, let's talk about a few names. Bear with me. The first name that's introduced into this is the name Simeon. The old man. The Holy Ghost said, you're not going to die until you see the consolation of Israel. Simeon is a Hebrew name, and it actually means heard or to be heard. He gets his name from the tribe of Simeon. Leah, she was hated by Jacob. So she has a son, Reuben, it doesn't do her any good. She has another son, Simeon, and she says, Ah, God has heard me and heard how I was hated. So she names him Simeon. So Simeon really has a negative context, but it's about hope and being heard in the midst of some negativity. And I was like, that's so good. Because we're in the midst of sin. We're in the midst of depravity. We're in the midst of bondage, and they're in the midst of Roman oppression. In the midst of some of the darkest times in Israel's history, in the midst of just being completely hopeless, because you can't fulfill the law, you can't earn your way to God, something new is heard. And something new is about to be heard. Bear bear that. Just hold on to that for a minute. Go down, the next person that's introduced is a lady named Anna. Anna is short for Hannah, and it actually, the name means grace. Most of you guys knew that. The name Anna, Hannah, means grace. She is the daughter of Phanuel. Did you guys notice that when it introduces Simeon, it doesn't say who his parents are? It doesn't say Simeon, the son of the house of, but it does with Anna. Nothing in this Bible is accidental. 
There's no word in here by accident. Everything has importance. The daughter of Phanuel. Phanuel gets his name from a place. Did you guys know that? Does any of you know what Phanuel means? Phanuel means the face of God. The face of God. And there's a story in Genesis 32, 33. There's a story. And Jacob is coming from his season. He's coming from his season. He's coming from his season of traveling and waywardness and his servitude with Laban and get marrying Leah and then marrying Rachel and working for 20 some odd years to try to get out of there but he's finally coming back and he's getting ready to face Esau who said that he was going to kill him and in the process of coming back he sends everybody ahead of him in droves and he stays behind at the Ford Jabbok and he stays behind and in the middle of the night somebody jumps out at him and they get into this wrestling match. And they wrestle all night long. And it's the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the person of Jesus Christ. And he wrestles with Jesus, whose name is secret. Follow the passage. He wrestles with Jesus until the break of day. And everybody always has this picture of Jacob getting the angel in like a headlock and hold him and saying, I won't let you go till you bless me. I don't believe that's what happened. I believe that the angel touched, uh, Jesus touched Jacob's hip, his leg went out, and he's holding on to like his ankle or something, like struggling. I won't let you go till you bless me. But he gets blessed in this instance, and his name, his identity has changed from Jacob, which means supplanter or he that grabs the heel. And it's changed to Israel, which means Prince of God. And then he is blessed. And then he goes forth from there walking on a limb. But when he does, he says this statement. He says, I have met God face to face and my life has been preserved. And he names the place, that place Phanuel. I think it's so fitting and I think that the reason that the name is mentioned is because the author, Luke, inspired by the Holy Ghost, saw the connection. That here you have God taking on flesh and coming to encounter man and some things are going to happen. Something new is about to be heard, but some things are going to happen. Mankind is going to struggle. Mankind is going to experience God. Mankind is going to have some identity changes. Mankind is going to get a new name. Mankind is going to get blessed. Mankind is going to have the opportunity to encounter God and have their life preserved. Do you see that? Do you see, do you see the poetic beauty of that? That we have an opportunity to come and to encounter God and to have our identity transformed, to get a new name, to be blessed, to experience God, have our life preserved eternally, and then to go forth from there walking on a limp. The rest of his life, Israel or Jacob has to lean on a staff, which is a tree. He has to depend on it. We have the ability to encounter God, to get a new identity, to have our name changed, to be blessed, to experience the rising of the sun, eternal life preservation. The only caveat is that the rest of our life will walk in dependence upon what happened on Calvary.
Amen. And it gets better. She's of the tribe of Asher. I love the name Asher. Name my son Asher. Asher means joy, but it's not just joy. It's a specific designation of joy. It's joy of the Lord. You know, that, that's verse in Ezra, and then it's repeated in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We, we misinterpret that a lot. We think and interpret that as like the joy of the Lord, our joy in the Lord. That's not what that means. It's the joy of the Lord. It's God's joy. It's God's joy. Not ours in Him. Although that can be included, it's God's joy. And I love this because if you follow this, she's of the tribe of Asher, meaning she's, it's God's joy. Then you have the encounter with man, God, between God and man that produces grace. So God, we talked about this last week, there was no motivation outside of God. There was no standard that he had to uphold. No, everything was a produ- production of the overflow of grace and mercy and love and joy in his heart. Jesus said, For the joy that was in him, he endured the cross. For God's joy in him motivated him to initiate an encounter between God and man at which we get a new identity, we get our name changed, we get blessed, we see our life preserved, we see the rising of the sun, and we go forth from there forever dependent upon the cross. All that was motivated by God's joy in himself to have that happen, and the outproduct of that is the grace of God. That's the indicatives of the Bible. You know what that requires of you? Surrendering your life and putting your faith in Jesus. You can't earn it. You can't work from it or work for it. You can't say, I've been good enough now. I deserve salvation. No, all of this is in God. He is the author of it all. This is his sovereign discretion at work in a poetic and beautiful way. Isn't that good? That is him being about his father's business. Amen. All right, let's see where we're at now. She goes forth from there. She speaks to everyone that would hear about the redemption of Israel. Then I want to go on and I want to mention a couple things and then we'll bring this in for a closing. A couple things that I want to mention is this, that they leave, Joseph and Mary, they leave at the age, and when Jesus is 12 years old and they go about a day's journey before they realize that he's not there. And so they turn around, they do some searching. And guess what? It says after three days they found him. Listen, I just freak out. Anytime I see three days in the scripture, I'm like, yes, this is good. It has some connection to the resurrection of Jesus. But after three days, they found him. And guess what he was doing? He was in the temple in the midst of the doctors, which is doctors of the law, lawyers, the Pharisees, the scribes. He's in the midst of them, and he's setting some things straight, asking questions, making statements, assuming. You know. Anyway, sorry, old TikTok song. But he, he is in the midst of them, and he's bringing some correction to the doctrine and to the theology. After three days, some correction happens. Bless God. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that as we pass. And then I want to go back down to that one statement. How is it that you sought me? Do you not know that I must be about my business? From the circumcision, the moment that he shed blood in fulfillment of the law, everything that Christ Jesus has done has been done in an effort to establish a plane or a door or a path of connection for us to have access to God. We've talked about this multiple times. You have that proverbial mountain where God sits on the mountain. And people may not call him God. They may call him scientific truth. They may call him the ultimate reason. They may call him the origin of all things. Like whatever they call him, scientists, doctors, philosophers, theologians, everybody has been trying to get to the top of this mountain since time began. 
And God realized nobody would ever get there. So he came off the mountain and revealed himself. That's why it says he spake some times in the past. You know, God who at sundry times in a diverse manner spake at times past unto the fathers by the prophets. He did some stuff. He spake in time past and revealed some things. But now he decided to speak and give us the fullness of revelation through his son. God himself came, took on flesh to reveal himself to us. To fulfill the law. To pay for our moral transgression. And to provide an opportunity for us to have justification through God. That is the Father's business that Christ must be about. And that's why at the end of it, when he's on the cross, that's why he says, it is finished. Because not only did he come, not only did he bring some correction to some doctrine and some theology, not only did he shed some light on things that you know the prophets had been largely silent on, not only did he dis- create and some discipleship, not only did he do some of those things, but he fulfilled the law and then paid the penalty for our sin as our substitute to satisfy the wrath of God. That's good news, church. And all of that is an indicative, meaning what God has done, not just what we have to do. So this morning, I don't want you to go out of here saying, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this. I don't want you to do that this morning. This morning, what I want you to do is I want you to walk out of here and say, God has done this for me. 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 Because I promise you what he has done for you is infinitely more important than what you could ever do for him. Amen? All right, let's pray, and then we'll take up the offering. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you, God. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for Calvary. Thank you for shedding your blood to pay for our redemption and to accomplish our atonement. Thank you for the blessings that you provide. Lord, I thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit that appropriates everything that you have accomplished to us. I thank you, God, for providing for my tomorrow. Lord, I I, I so love the verse that says, sufficient to the day, is the evil thereof. I don't have to worry about tomorrow because you already own that space. Your blood is already there. That space is already sanctified and taken care of. Lord, I need that. I need that name that is above every name. I need that name spoken over my life because so often I struggle, so often I slip, so often I stumble, so often I fall. I need to be reminded that you knew that that was going to happen before you ever called my name. I need to be reminded that you haven't just called me to a job or to a position, but like faith says so often, you've called me to you. Lord, thank you for being my salvation. Thank you. God, I pray that you bless this church and everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen.